0: Today's guest is the author of multiple fantasy series, including the Legends of Mirwood Trilogy, the Covenant of Mirwood Trilogy, the Whispers of Mirowind Trilogy, and the Landmore series, as well as numerous articles and stories published in the fantasy e-zine he co-founded called Deep Magic. He self-published The Wretched of Mirwood in 2011 on CreateSpace and soon caught the attention of the Amazon publishing imprint 47 North. In 2014, he retired from a career at Intel to write full-time And his latest novel, The Queen's Poisoner, the King Fountain Series book one, drops April 1st. A husband, father, history buff, seasoned tabletop gamer, and Skyping in from his home in Rockland, California, Jeff Wheeler, welcome to the show.
1: Nice to be here. Thanks, guys.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, Let's talk about your latest book, *The Queen's Poisoner*. Tell our listeners what they can expect from this new book and this new series.
1: Well, in *The Queen's Poisoner*, I I actually take a character point of view that I've never tried before in my writing. That's the the point of view of an eight year old boy, and my publisher was a little bit nervous about that, and they said, "Well, it's not what you've normally done," but this story has, has has gripped me and. And, and so the story really takes place about a, a young boy who's stuck in this medieval-ish fantasy setting where, you know, the king's really bad and, and has a has a reputation for taking hostages and, and them not surviving. And, and this boy's got to kind of maneuver his way through a very difficult situation. So when my publisher uh, read the first book, uh, the, his, the response was, I, I can't believe he doubted this. This is fantastic. So they really liked how, the, how book one kicked off. And they liked the fact that in book two, the character is going to be about seven, eight years older. So it's not going to be just the story about an eight year old boy, but his life and uh, as he kind of grows up.
0: That's cool. And so the Queen's Poisoner is currently part of the Kindle First program. For those who may not be familiar, what is the Kindle First program?
1: Kindle First is, um, is, is something that Amazon has tried out where they released the book on Kindle only a month before its actual publishing date. So uh, April 1st is when Queen's Poisoner comes out, but on March 1st, they release it on Kindle. Uh, if you're an Amazon Prime member, you get six books a month that you can read for free. If you're not a Prime member, you can actually buy the book for $2, which is a screaming deal for a, a brand new book that's uh, a month out early. So it's a way for them to uh, let readers especially try somebody new for the first time or try a new uh, for the first time uh, with kind of a low-risk entry, and then all of the you know it, it kind of helps build up the buzz towards the launch date. So um, it's really in 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 the Amazon publishing community getting one of these deals is like winning the golden ticket in Willy Wonka land. So I, I feel very uh, very blessed <laughs> that uh, they selected Queen's Poison you know, or they liked it enough uh, to want to feature it in that in that program and. It's uh, been doing really well since uh, since uh, March first, and it began.
0: yeah, ninety two reviews so far, and the book isn't even officially out yet. Yes, yes. A lot of authors talk about having that, uh, having those reviews in hand once the book releases. Do you think it's pretty important to have a lot of reviews kind of available once a book releases?
1: Uh, it, it absolutely is. I mean, not just for the you know the reasons that it 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 works with Amazon's algorithms to. Help point you to new readers you know if, if you only have reviews there's so many other books out there that it's easy to get lost and, and, and not covered so having um, having reviews up helps with those people you know finding you for the first time they really do look at those custom reviews and, and get that gut sense of hmm do I want to try uh, this book so incredibly helpful to, to have it and to, to be able to do this so can't be more pleased
2: yeah, I was actually a little confused when I went to look at Queen's Poisoner on uh, Amazon, and I was like, "Why does this already have so many?" Rev- I didn't know about the Kindle First uh, thing, so I was like, "Wow, that's cool that people somehow <laughs> absorbed Bosis the book before it was even released." But now, now it makes sense. So now I understand why. So you actually said uh, on your website you recommend readers to start with the the King fountain uh, trilogy that's your new your new trilogy and uh that your publisher said it's your best work what kind of what kind of feedback have you gotten so far on the new book that differs from what what readers that have been with you for a while uh from the uh, Mirrorwood series
1: that's a that's a great question so you know some readers like to follow just a single series and and are, aren't interested in looking at um at New World, so I was I was interested to see what that initial feedback was going to be. All of my early readers, you know, I have a core group of people who read my books before um, I even released them to my publisher. So I, I have this this core base. When they read it, all of them said, "This is your best work." Then my publisher took a look at it, and and they loved it, and they said, "This is your best work." In fact, they liked book two three even better than book one and they said we didn't think that was going to be possible but the story just keeps building and it becomes more intense and more uh desperate and and they just they liked how that that progressed the initial reader feedback is i've been reading the reviews and i'm maybe untypical from many authors i I read every single review the good and the bad and and try not to let either affect me and just look at that and the reviews so far many of them who have said we've liked his other series but we really like this one. Even, even more. So I think it, it's kind of jived with uh, what some of those early readers have been telling me.
2: So it is a case of uh, readers that have been with you for a while. They, they also enjoy the new series. And that maybe, uh, do you think maybe people who uh, didn't pick up on the first series would, would like this series? Is it different enough? Is it very similar in, in different ways? Or is it very
1: similar style? Well, you know, my, my writing style has evolved. Since I, you know, wrote the Muirwood series, but I, I still have some of the same themes and uh, some of the the same ways. But I, I think readers have wondered and, and have wondered, you know, where do I start? You have so many books, Jeff. Where do I jump in first? Do I have to go and start all the way at Landmore? Do I start at Muirwood? Where do I start? And they've, they've asked me that question enough times. That's why I put it on my website, just to say here's here's the suggested reading order. But I feel that King Fountain, this new series. Stands enough alone that you don't need to have read the other one. So if you want to start there, it's a great place to start because um, it's you know it's the newest thing coming out. And then if you like style, then try out one of my other books too, and and, and see if it, uh, if they resonate well. Because my my style doesn't drastically change in between books, but it has I think matured over time.
0: Jeff, in 2014, you actually retired from a a career in the tech industry to pursue writing full-time. Can you maybe tell us about how you made this transition to being a full-time author? Was it tough? And uh, how have things fared in the two years since you uh, retired, so to speak?
1: You know, I... For the last 20-some years, it has been my dream uh, to be a full-time writer. So I'm very conservative in nature. I didn't want to make the jump from Intel until I had enough books behind me and had seen kind of what normal looked like. And in the publishing industry, there isn't normal. Um, things are always changing. And so I, I just wanted to have some consistency and, 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 and see how things were going with Amazon Publishing and, and, and the nature of the thing. So it, it's gone great. In fact. Uh, before while I was working I could write about a book a year and had been able to maintain that cadence and when I was talking to, to Amazon about my Covenant of Mirrorwood series um, I, I, I suggested to them the idea of having a, a tighter launch window uh, in which case I would need to you know, write full time and and we, we worked out that, that, uh, that deal before I left uh, Intel and so because I've been able to do this full-time. I've actually been able to write three books a year uh, instead of one book a year. And I haven't had any problems maintaining uh, that pace, which works really great for 47 North. And it works really great with me. And so I'm able to always have a project uh, that I'm working on and, and, and moving forward on. So I found the trans- transition to be just absolutely a dream come true. So I love my love my job. I love getting up in the morning. I love uh, writing and love being able to interact with fans Social media and other things, and it's just been a uh, fantastic. It's been nice not having the some of the business meetings that I would I would have at Intel, but uh, I still contact with friends there, and uh, you know just but can't feel any more bored than I am having the the dream job I've always wanted to have.
0: Jeff, you talked about an, uh, a faster release schedule uh, for the King Fountain series. It looks like the next book in the series is due out May thirty first, and then the final volume in the trilogy is actually coming out in. September. So the whole trilogy is basically six months is kind of the window for, for all three books. What's kind of the philosophy, the idea behind releasing the, the books so quickly back to back?
1: Well, if you think that's fast, go look at the uh, release schedule for the Covenant of Mirwood series. That was actually one month in between books. Wow. One of the things that I've really enjoyed about partnering with Amazon Publishing and 47 North is their willingness to try something new and, and to do something. And, and this came... As a result of when we are, when they uh, when I when they originally took the rights to um, the first Mirrorwood series, they had all three books, and so they repackaged them, did new covers, did audiobooks. They published them all on the same day, about a month before you know the book Fireblood came out. And having all three books out at a time, they sold like just a crazy number of copies. And one of the reasons is we've been, you know, analyzing the data and looking at is because one of the phenomenons we're seeing in the in the readership is binge reading. Just like you know, people take like Netflix and Hulu and they, they binge on an entire season of something. Many readers wait until a, a series is done. They don't like getting drawn over years and years and sometimes decades uh, to finish a series, so they'll actually hold off and wait. So, kind of leveraging the success we saw with the original Mirrorwood series. With Covenant, we decided to do it every month. You know, just one book a month for three months, and you know that ended up being a little bit too fast. I think in terms of you know getting all of our coordination and all the the different marketing pieces together. So with King Fountain, we're actually spreading it out a little bit. But when I signed the the deal for King Fountain, we were originally thinking doing it a book a month, but then kind of spaced it out a little bit better to to, to kind of test the waters and see how that does. But I already have readers who, again, they see it on Kindle first, they've read it already in 24 hours, and they're already saying, I want book two, and I don't want to wait till May. And I, I kind of scratch my head going, you know, you realize this is not what is normal in the industry <laughs> to be able to have the next book out just a couple months later, and then the, the follow-on. So you don't have to wait too long uh, for releases for me, which I think is uh, good for my fans. And it's good for me, too.
0: Yeah, that's definitely not the not the norm. Usually, you know, with the authors that we've had on, it's usually about a year or so between releases. So that's definitely an escalated release schedule. Yeah. And good on 47 North for for trying new things. We always like to see that. Um, so your, your interaction with 47 North actually started uh, a few years ago when you found success on CreateSpace. Tell us about your kind of your evolution in publishing and how you came into contact with 47 North.
1: You know, um, there's a time a couple of years ago when when the self-publishing thing became a little bit more um, common. And I, I think it was a, a, a factors of, of, of timing because I'd, I'd already written the Mirrorwood series, the original one. And I'd shopped it around to agents, had gotten a little nibble here, a little nibble there. One even you know, read the first manuscript before rejecting it. And so my my decision to self-publish it was based on my early reader feedback. That everyone was like, hey, I want to share this with my friends, but you know, it's on a you know Microsoft Word document. I, you know, <laughs> how do how do I do that? And I I wasn't comfortable with it just being released into the wild. So I, I thought about it, I thought about it. And, and just because of that that reader feedback was so strong, they, they wanted to share it, um, my wife and I made the decision to publish all three just at the same time. So let's just do three books and let's do it through CreateSpace. Um, that, you know, it was out on CreateSpace for almost a year before Amazon created Kindle Direct. So that was where it would become exclusive on the Kindle device. And you, you you couldn't do it through Smashwords, and you couldn't do it through some other you know other forums, and I thought, well, what would be the harm of trying it, right? I can always say no after my you know, after three months is done and go back to Smashwords if I want to, and I, I decided to do it with Kindle Direct, and I, I think I just happened to catch this tidal wave as you know there were more and more Kindle devices out there, more and more people looking for you know uh, less expensive reads, and I, I published it through Kindle Direct. I offered it for free and. I still remember, you know, checking my, my, my sales after I had done this freebie and 10,000 copies had been downloaded for free of the first book. And it just knocked me off my chair and I thought, how can this be? And those 10,000 freebies turned into thousands and thousands of sales. And the reviews started, you know, piling in and, you know, people were liking it, they're, they're sharing their friends. And it was just a couple months later that 47 North contacted me. I didn't submit to them, they, they reached out to me. But Forty Seven North hadn't even existed back when I self-published it. They had really only come into being uh, the uh, October before I, I joined, you know, Kindle Direct, maybe two months, and they happened to be, you know, watching what the bestsellers were, and they, they saw my book and, uh, you know, kind of followed it a little bit, saw that the customer reaction was good, and the, their acquisition editor reached out to me and wanted to talk a, a book deal. And when he heard I was still writing and doing a new new series. Uh, they signed me up with a six-book deal, the original Mirrorwood plus the Mirrorwind series, and the rest, as we say, is history. It's been a good partnership ever since.
0: So you kind of hit during that kind gold of gold-rushy the, period of the Kindle and kind of the advent of, of the ebook kind of hitting its, its a- apex kind of in
1: the tw- 2011 area. A- absolutely, absolutely. But I'd been self-publishing l- well before then. I mean, back when mm-hmm. uh, I did Landmore and Silverkin, that was back when I was right, doing Deep Magic, and... You know, getting a book out there because there was no Kindle, there was no device back then. You know, you really could only sell a physical book through the Amazon store, and it just it just it wasn't as easy to to spread and to share as it became later with uh, Kindle Direct.
2: So you're actually one of the, the first authors we've had that's talked about the Kindle First program, and as well, uh, you you're involved in the Kindle Worlds program also. This is. For people that don't know, uh, from what I gather of it, it's it's essentially uh, you allow people to write in your world, and they publish fan fiction, essentially, directly to Kindle. Uh, what is your opinion of fan fiction in general, and and how has it felt for you to kind of see other people tinker around in your universe and, and expand
1: it? You know, if people have asked me that question, like, are you comfortable with this? You know, that people are... <laughs> Playing in your sandbox. After having read uh, the stories that some of the authors did, I, it it actually just lights me up. It's fantastic. I love seeing how my world has inspired other people's imaginations. I, I wish more people would give it a try. And uh, you know, if you look at the Kindle World website, there's a lot of different worlds that you can write in. And if you if you happen to be passionate about epic fantasy, and you know, there's mine and there's others. So I think it's a great opportunity. And if I would have done it myself, you know, because I think we all, you know, look at authors that have inspired us. For me, it was Terry Brooks. And if I had been given a chance to write in the Shannara universe, I would have jumped on that. And I think that it's just, it's another sign that, you know, Amazon's just trying to create and, and innovate within the, within the industry. So I think the more the merrier. And, and I really loved the stories that I read that were based in my mirror. I, I just geeked out. I was like, this is fantastic. Just reading the different things and, you know, people finding little niches of that I hadn't developed and, and developing them. And I, I just think it's just, I think it's wonderful.
2: Do you see there ever being a possibility of say someone writes something from the Kindle worlds program, and then that triggers an idea in your head to, to go in some different direction in your your own universe,
1: it's absolutely designed the to do that. So the the terms uh, the terms of the the deal is they have the right to you know play in my sandbox, and I have the right to take anything that they've created and to weave it into the you know, official universe if I if I want to. So it's it's a win win situation. Absolutely. Oh, okay. Cool. Do you have any kind of
0: input on the editorial process for the for that fan fiction that goes out does it have to kind of go go through the desk of Jeff Wheeler before it gets out to the public or? No it doesn't
1: that, again I was really I, I was I was very nervous uh, about <laughs> that cuz you know the uh, you know Amazon decides <laughs> what is it's published and uh, what does not so um, I was nervous about it but you know the, the the fans that I have who are passionate about that world want to write stories based on the themes and the tones and stuff that I set. And every offering that has happened so far, I've been absolutely delighted in.
0: And your cover art is amazing for, I think, pretty much every book that you have. Yeah. But uh, cover is just very impressive. Uh, do you think it's pretty important to have intense cover art to, to have a good product?
1: You know, the, the saying is don't judge a book by its cover. But come on, we do <laughs> It's as, as, as part of us. So, you know, I think that having decent cover art and, you know, when I self-published Muirwood, you know, the the original cover art was not very good just (laughs) photos and stuff so I'm really grateful that 47 North, you know, grabbed a a really good artist and I worked with him on on several projects and as well as some others as well so I I absolutely, violently agree that the cover art really does attract or repel uh, readers uh, from, from, from the story. So it's, it's a huge part of the ingredient. And it's my, one of my favorite parts of the process is working with uh, 47 North to design. And I'm always just giddily waiting for the next revs <laughs> to come in and say, "Oh, I like that. And here, tweak this or, or fix that. So I'm doing the third book of the King fountain series right now. And, and I uh, just got the cover art initial draft this week. And it's just, it, it always makes my day when I get new art to look at.
2: So, you know, cover art is obviously very uh, focused on for a lot of authors and blurbs. So those those are often the things people talk about the most when they're, you know, going forward as a uh, writer, whether it's self-published or traditional, they, they want to have great cover art. They want to have uh, a good blurb to hook in readers. But one thing I've noticed about The Queen's Poisoner, it, it's a... It's a really eye-catching title also. It's something we don't talk about very much is how important titles are. How do you weigh in on the importance of titles? Do you think it's important to have a really great title or are titles kind of not as important?
1: You know, I would say titles are super important. And I'm also the first to admit that I did not create all the titles for all of my books. That sometimes my initial idea as I talked it over with my editor, as I talked it over with the marketing and publicity team, that, you know, for example, a, a, a title that's unpronounceable, you know, yeah. it, it, it might be totally pronounceable to me because I wrote the thing and I invented it. But if somebody's going to go type in on a, a search string for a, a, a word that they don't even know, you know, that's unfamiliar to them, it's going to make it harder for a reader to catch it. So it's, it's really a, a conversation that happens between the author editors and and, and the publicity folks to make sure that we're catching the right thing. Now I will take credit because I did come up with The Queen's Poisoner on my own and they (laughs) loved it because it just has uh, an evocative thing. But book two and book three of the series was actually a a result of strong collaboration uh, with my publisher to make sure that we're catching that right kind of tone and using the right kind of words to do that. But I I, I did come up with Queen's Poisoner on my own and I am very proud of it.
2: Yeah, I immediately was like, "Oh, that's interesting." <laughs> queen and Queen is Poisoned. Okay, what? How? What?
1: When? <laughs> where, why? It, it just just that title evokes curiosity, and that's what a good book title should do, right? It should make you want to go. What? what what's this about? Let me read the blurb next. You know, this sounds interesting, and if that catches you, oh, well, what is the? What do the reviewers think? And hopefully, every reader goes through that process of of in, being enticed. To try a book and the really the first thing is the cover and the title are those first two steps of the process to entice somebody to give you a try.
0: And it looks like you have kind of each chapter is titled as well in The Queen's Poisoner.
1: Um, it is. I, I have that. I, I do that in with some of my series and I don't do that with some of my other series. So it, it really depends on the book. I, I don't do everything. I don't do everything the same way. Um, but for, for that series, I definitely decided to uh, have little titles, because those, those chapter titles for me can, are kind of like hooks too, to try to you, know, make them not want to put their Kindle down and, and you go to bed, but to actually let me just read one more. Just, just one more chapter, and then I've got them, and then it's then another one, and then all of a sudden they've stayed up all night. And I love getting emails from fans saying, "I've been up all night. <laughs> you know, I'm so tired, but I couldn't put it down. I loved it. And I, I, that, that always makes my day when I get feedback like that.
2: So, so one thing that we focus on on our podcast specifically is uh, we were originally pegged as the first Grimdark uh, podcast. So obviously we focus a lot on kind of darker fantasy. And uh, something that you mentioned in an interview you did with uh, Davina Rush, you said that you wanted to write clean fantasy, which is kind of your reaction to the trend of fantasy getting darker and darker how would you describe what clean fantasy would actually be uh, would, it, would it be just more traditional style fantasy or would it be fantasy with less violence and sexual imagery and etc.
1: You bet and, and, and it's actually a I think it's an emerging trend that you know I'm starting to see and I, I'm seeing it also because because my writing is like that I'm attracting to me fans that want that kind of thing and I can't tell you how many reviews I've had of my books that have said, "Hey, I appreciate the fact that there isn't, you know, sex in it, there's not swearing, there's not, you know, excessive violence. It's kind of like Lord of the Rings violence from, you know, Fellowship of the Ring or something. There's there's you can't have fantasy without some of it, but it's 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 not brutal, it's not over the top." And so I I saw the pendulum swinging one direction, but the feedback I I, I was seeing from fans was, well, we like intense plots, we like complex characters, but we we want something that's just cleaner. And and so that's the kind of thing that I like to read, and that's the kind of thing that I like to write. And as I started, you know, as I've been down my journey, I've just been attracting to, to, to me other kinds of readers that do that. And hanging out with other authors as I do, you know, I'll hear other authors say, yeah, I'll, you know, fans will criticize me, you know, will critique me because I have sex and swearing and violence in my stuff. And I, I just, every time I hear that, I kind of take note. It's like, okay, there's a segment out there that, that doesn't want it, they still want the, the, the fiction to be good. It doesn't have to be like, you know, Disney happy ending every time, but they just, there's certain things they don't want to read about. So that's, why I've labeled it clean, and it, I'm not the one who created it. I've seen it all over the place. There are discussion groups on Goodreads that are looking for clean reads, and so I'm just trying to position my work that way to to meet that audience. I absolutely understand that there's other readers that you know the grittier the better for them, and that's that's totally fine. There's there's plenty of room in the universe for different kinds of stories. We can be the ones to say
0: that Jeff Wheeler is not grimdark. <laughs> you
1: can't. You can't.
0: We can
2: officially announce that here on this podcast.
0: We've had some some folks tune into the show and say, hey, that author such and such is not Grimdark. And we're like, we know we we are the podcast for Grimdark, but we also have other authors like Jeff Wheeler who produce awesome fantasy books who may not have the same Grimdark vibe. But we tend to... Recently, we've wanted to kind of represent the whole swath of SFF uh, genre fiction out there. So um, it's good on you for uh, having a product that's available to readers who who have that sensibility where they don't necessarily like the grim, darky stuff. But they they still want a cool story, but they they, they don't necessarily want those elements that uh, make grim, dark what it is. So that's that's a cool thing.
1: And like I said, the ocean's big enough for lots of boats uh, to do that. And. You know, when I was publishing Deep Magic, you know, we would feature stories by authors that, you know, some of their stuff is dark, but just not the stuff that was in Deep Magic. So it's okay to, you know, interview authors. I mean, I interviewed George R. R. Martin when Game of Thrones came out for Deep Magic. And it it just because it's about, you know, sometimes it's about the craft and and learning from the best. So, you know, why not talk to a variety of people? It doesn't doesn't hurt you to do that. So kudos to you guys for inviting somebody who's not grimdark to your Happy to be
2: here. (laughs) Well, uh, if if you could tell us, uh, you know, uh, since a lot of our fans are more into darker fiction and uh, the darker trend of fantasy, uh, if you could tell us some of the, what you would describe as clean fantasy for those people who happen to be listening to our show that are interested in finding uh, more authors in that vein that are similar in style to, to you, who are some people you would suggest?
1: You know, um, I really like um, Brandon Mull, uh, his uh, Fablehaven series, Beyonder series. Um, I've even been reading his Five Kingdoms uh, series. Uh, Brandon Mull's a good one. Um, Terry Brooks, that's how I got started. I, I wouldn't call Terry Brooks Grimdark. Um, and I've, you know, followed him for years, and he's the one who's inspired uh, my writing. So if you, if you like his stuff, that's good. Um, even from a, you know, Grimdark's Status. I like Anthony Ryan's work, and I read Blood Song and just loved it because, while his stuff is darker, he had a theme. You know, his main character was kind of noble and honorable, and and you know, and and maintained his his you know integrity even though he's in really hard situations, and that really resonated with me, as you know, as the kind of things that I like to write. So you, there's there's plenty of blurring of the edges. But, um, I think those are some good examples. Uh, some people also like Robert Jordan, um, you know, and Brandon Sanderson, those are some others that, uh, I'd recommend as well.
2: Do you think that, uh, Brandon Sanderson is part robot with his production? <laughs> he, <it's> like, <laughs> he's like, so, uh, what's the word? Prolific. prolific yeah. Extremely. Uh,
1: absolutely. Prolific. And I've, I've heard that he, he like secretly wants to tie in all these universes that he's created together. And I, I have to say, I do too. So there's, as an author, your your imagination just creates these connections that uh, are there. So I hope to be as prolific as him someday.
0: I'm saying he's at least 25% robot, <laughs> just with, if not more. But no, Brandon's awesome. And you mentioned on your website that joining Kindle Direct was one of the best decisions you made in your professional writing career. Um, for for those who aren't familiar, what what exactly? was the kindle direct and how, how did it have such a significant impact for you
1: well K- kindle direct means that you're making your book exclusive to the kindle platform now that doesn't mean only a kindle device so kindle you know you can read kindle books on your ipad you can read them on on your smartphones it's it's not limited to a kindle device but the platform it's their reading um, software basically it allows you it's how you turn the pages. It's how you buy things through the, the Kindle store and so what I, I, I Absolutely thought it was the right thing for me And I, I don't regret it at all because when you're you know when you're Competing with such a large volume of other authors out there One of the best ways to get notice is to give your book away for free and just to you know and, and, and it's a strategy I see many uh, indie uh writers do that they'll give away the first book for like 99 cents or maybe they'll give it away for free and then they'll sell subsequent books for you know regular mainstream prices it it reduces the barrier to try a new thing it's like hey it's a dollar it's like i can try this you can even read the samples for free so kindle direct allowed me to reach a pretty large fan base relatively quickly faster than i had done the year before of just, you know, making it available through multiple platforms. So it absolutely got me in front of the the most number of eyeballs, the fastest. And I also really think it helped that I had three books out that somebody, you know, didn't have to think that they were going to have to wait years and years. They they could see all three of my Mirrorwood books. They could read one after the other and, and, and maintain that momentum and pacing and, and really have that emotional reaction that we want our readers to have. And, and then they tell their friends because that's really how books spread is, is somebody tells somebody else about an author that they like. And just, you know, imagine those 10,000 people then sharing it with, with their friends. Um, it really, it was, a, it was a huge ripple effect that happened with it. So if that hadn't have happened, if I hadn't have gone through Kindle Direct, then I don't think 47 North would have even seen me uh, a, a month amongst all the, the crowd that was there at the time. So I absolutely give it credit and, and uh, recommend it. I, I recommend it to other authors as well to just try it out, especially if you're going to try uh, self publishing.
2: You know, you're very invested in Amazon's programs like Kindle Worlds and Kindle First and recently Amazon announced that they were gonna make some brick and mortar stores. What is your feelings about them expanding into a more physical realm of book selling?
1: I think it's brilliant, actually. So I've I've read up a lot on the industry. I follow industry trends. When I heard they were doing their stores, that wasn't a surprise to me because, you know, the press had been, you know, uh, sneaking stuff out there. I mean, they have been hearing about it for months prior to their announcement. But here's why I think it's brilliant. Um, If I go to Barnes and Noble today and I walk in the door, they don't know who I am. They don't know what I want to read. They don't know how to supply things. Amazon really looks at the data and I'm a data geek. So they're they're looking at that that store in Seattle. They're looking at what are the people in Seattle buying? Not just what are the people of Seattle buying, but what are the people in that neighborhood buying? So they're statistically more likely to be able to furnish books that their customers are going to want to read and they're going to know their customers and do that. So I, I like the recommendations that I get from the Amazon engines and stuff. And I would love to have an Amazon bookstore here in Sacramento to, that, that was catering to the, the people of my area. So it, it's it, it takes away some of the guesswork I think that um, exists in, in the bookstore business where you don't know what your readers want. Amazon does know what readers want, and they will try to, you know, supply and and uh, you know and, and do that. So I think it's I think it's brilliant, and it's it, using data to you know to to provide your offerings and not just you know individual buyers' guesses.
0: Let's delve into your background as, in writing just for a moment. Um, so Terry Brooks was pretty foundational for you as a writer. Absolutely. You actually uh, mentioned on your bio that you heard his quote from Stephen King about the first million words. Tell us about that first million words principle.
1: Um, the first million words means that you know, and when you've written your first million words, then you're ready to start being a writer because it's really about practice, and you have got to practice, practice your craft, and. The experience that I had is Terry Brooks actually came out to the San Francisco area you know, over 10 years ago and taught a writing seminar. That's where I heard the quote and I attended his class. And as I was driving home from that that seminar, I mean, I got to spend the day with, you know, my, <laughs> the guy I, I just always enjoyed his writing from and I had lunch with him. It was just him and me just sitting at a cafe and having lunch together. It was absolutely just like surreal. Um, <laughs> driving home, and I, and I was thinking about that million words. I said, "I wonder how many words I've actually written." So I got home and I, I looked at all the stuff I wrote in high school. So I wrote five books while I was in high school. I wrote the Landmore book like six or seven times from scratch, you know, to you know, w- work on it. When I added up all that stuff, it was just under a million words. And that's when I re- wrote the Wretched of Mirwood. My style had matured a little bit more, and I just needed the practice. And I—that's the advice that I give to people—is. You know, um, you're going to need to, you know, practice and, you know, there's no substitute for it. So I started when I was very young. I started when I was in high school, uh, but it took it took, you know, decades of work to uh, finally get there. But that's why I agree with the principal so much is it's writing's a craft, just like anything else is. And practice will 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 improve your skill in it.
2: So you never want to publish any of the books you wrote in high school at all
1: no absolutely <laughs> not I'd forbid it because you know I, I, I might leverage themes I might steal character names or places and stuff but I consider those my practice works and um, I, I even have you know readers who say hey I love your Landmore series the best you know go back and do more from that I mean I could but I'm just not as passionate about it because that was kind of, I kind of consider those those stories things that I was cutting my teeth on and I'm just not as passionate about that as I am Passionate about my my newest stuff, I really was excited to write this King Fountain series, and not as excited about going back and rehashing something I did, you know, over ten years ago.
2: Yeah, like I talked to some people in different forums about the idea of writing practice novels when you first start out, and I think there was kind of some pushback from different people saying, "Well, no novel should be a practice novel. Everything should be your best effort." But at the same time, uh, a lot of us do start writing at a relatively young age. And I know I wouldn't want to publish anything I wrote in junior high and uh, the same as most people wouldn't. But this idea of practice novels, I actually think isn't a bad idea. I mean, uh, I I
1: actually totally agree with you, Philip, because I have a lot of practice novels under (laughs) my belt. And and, and, I I think, you know, we, we, we do ourselves a disservice when we look at the occasional things like, you know, J.K. Rowling, right? <laughs> you know, her practice novel was Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. I mean, <laughs> come on, you know, that's it, it, fantastic. And we, we, we kind of idolize or glamorize those, those things. Stephanie Meyer's Twilight, you know, it's like first book, wrote it in a couple of months and, you know, mega bestseller. That's not how it is for most people. And I'm totally with you that, you know, for me, I needed to practice a lot before I got good at it. And that's okay, I still did my best effort in high school, but it wasn't my best potential.
2: It's like saying David Beckham was like the best he could be at playing soccer when he was in high school.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's <laughs> not that's not true for most people.
0: Do you think the um, accessibility of being able to self-publish um, has created perhaps a tendency to have authors put out work that's not necessarily their best too soon? Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I, I and I've read many of them, and, <laughs> and it, it, you could you know it's it's exciting, right? You've written, you've written a novel and you want to get it out there, but the risk here's the risk is it, it, it affects your reputation, right? If you put out a book that's not it's poorly edited, it's not it's not professional quality, you're now creating that brand with your readers. So I was very reluctant. Um, at first to, to publish mirrorwood you know but it was that it was it was the reader feedback that was saying go do this people want it people want it and I was so reluctant but I'm so glad that I did
0: and you actually put uh, the wretched of Mirrorwood uh, across the desk of what 30 plus agents
1: yes now here's a funny story so I, I, I you know I, I went through that rejection loop but, but it was about a week before I left Intel right I, I'd already announced I was re- retiring and I, it was like one of the last days on the job i got an email from an agent who had happened to be have had lunch with the acquisition editor who had signed me up with um, amazon to begin with and he was telling them my story and he, he this agent reached out to me and it's like you know, you know tell me your story jeff you know and and he said i, I just i'm just curious he's like i've read your, i started reading your stuff based on you know this guy's recommendation it's really good i'm curious did you submit your stuff to me and I still have it all on a spreadsheet. And I went back and looked at my spreadsheet. And sure enough, his name was there. I said, yeah, I did. And he's, he's like, he started kicking himself. He's like, I can't believe, you know, he's like, I, I, he, and he searched his records and he couldn't find any record of me doing it. But it was interesting to see the tables turned, uh, I actually have a good relationship with that agent now. I don't have an agent, but um, it's just neat to see the, 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 the roles switch to say, you know, yeah, it, it kinda happened anyway. So I was, that was kinda fun, true story.
0: How did you wade through that rejection of seemingly endless agents that said, nope, nope, nope?
1: You know, it's hard. It's a really hard thing for writers to do, but I'm very persistent. And, you know, you have to have a lot of confidence and and, and just realize that that it's very subjective, that somebody's opinion, and whether it's an editor's or whether it's an agent's, it's subjective. And what gave me the courage to keep going was the reader feedback that's you know that, that that's who the customers are the people who read the books and th- it gave me the the courage to keep trying and then once I started getting feedback from people I didn't know right these th- that's the most untainted unbiased feedback is strangers and when they're you're giving you five-star reviews you know, consistently and your your Amazon you know average review numbers is a really important number because it's showing you what on average strangers think. I was like, okay, I, the, the tone I'm hitting, this clean fantasy, is resonating with an audience. And I, I was afraid the audience would be like a thousand people. And I'm grateful to be able to say it's it's well north of a thousand people. So that's, I think, that's just been goodness for me. It's just to, to be able to just, you know, persist through that. And I, I was just determined. But there, there were times where I felt like, you know, what am I doing this for? But um, I, I'm a very persistent person.
2: Yeah, I think persistence is... Probably one of the top things any writer should have. So, you know, writers, a lot of writers listen to our podcast and, and that they may get discouraged if they're rejected or, or they're not finding as much success as they hope with their self publishing or whatever the case may be. And the big, the big thing is just to keep, keep doing it and keep, uh, working at it really. And then something will come through eventually for almost anybody, if you're persistent and talented you know, things always kind of work out eventually for everybody.
1: It's true, Philip. I wrote a blog posting recently called The Lonely Profession. You know, (laughs) you have to have a thick skin and you have to be able to handle a lot of solitude to be a writer, not only just for the the creating of it, but, you know, it takes a lot of grit and determination to do it. But I I absolutely agree that persistence is probably the single thing that enables somebody to make it it, because most people quit. Uh, along the way. And it's that those, the ability to be persistent that helps you through the rejection and the, 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 dark days.
0: And you were involved with uh, the, the e Deep Magic, which you helped co-found. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that magazine and your experience of uh, publishing that.
1: Well, um, it's an idea that some friends and I had, you know, years ago back during our college days of, you know, we love fantasy. We've been, you know, fans of it all along. And the thought of well, you know, I, I guess we were looking at it as an opportunity to, you know, get to meet uh, authors, an opportunity to get to meet editors, you know, people in the industry and stuff. And so we just decided on a lark to just create this, you know, this, this e-zine and, and were surprised at, at how easy it was to be able to get artists, I mean, we, we didn't charge anything, so we were getting people to donate stories for free, artists to give us cover art for free, I mean, we had like no money, no budget for it. And we just pulled together some like-minded people. We had people volunteering from all over the world, literally, to say, we want to be part of this. Can we be one of your you know, first readers or, or whatever? So we pulled together this team. And part of my thinking was, you know, one of the hardest things for an author is to get an audience, right, to find readers. And I thought it'd be easier for me to be able to sell my books if I could build a readership first. And so I thought, well, let's start off with, using a platform like Deep Magic to you know introduce me to readers but also to help other authors find that same niche, that same same thing. So uh, it, it worked out really well. We, we published it for several years uh, issue a month and I miss those days. I would even I've even been thinking about starting it up again and you know because I enjoyed the camaraderie and I joined the ability to pull you know people who had the same passions for the same genre and subgenres together at the same time. So I really enjoyed the experience and loved the opportunities of meeting the people that I did. Like I said, I, met, I interviewed George R. R. Martin when I was, you know, back when A Song of Ice and Fire first came out, and it was uh, it was neat being able to talk to him and, and other people that you know are luminaries now.
0: Yeah, the magazine looks fantastic. You actually have a, the entire archive available to read for no charge on Scribd. Scribd. I'm not sure how to say that, but folks can uh, take a look at that. And is the main kind of focus of uh, the, the more clean fantasy with with that publication? It is,
1: yeah. We we, we were kind of targeting um, clean fantasy, and if I were going to do deep magic again, I'd, I'd do the same thing because I really do believe that there's a market out there for people who want to read fantasy, but they just there's stuff in it that they don't want uh, in there.
2: So you're leaning towards perhaps bringing it back?
1: Yeah, I've, I've I've definitely given it some serious thought.
2: So that's that's a grim tidings exclusive that Jeff Wheeler mm-hmm. potentially bring, bringing back D-Magic. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And are you using a Scrivener or Microsoft Word or
1: Microsoft Word? Yeah, something to hold the words. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and would you say you're more of a pantser or a outliner plotter? I suppose you have to be a plotter these days, working with your publisher. Uh,
1: you know, I'm not a pantser, definitely. But I, the way my mind works when I come up with a story idea, I usually see ideas in a three book arc, a trilogy. And I kind of see, you know, uh, that kind of scaffolding comes to my mind first. I don't plot out every little detail. I like surprising myself. And often sometimes the characters will take me places that I weren't expecting them to take me. But I I tend to land on the touch points that I set out at the beginning and then just kind of enjoy the scenery along the way as I, you know, figure out how they're going to get from point A to point B to point C along that story arc.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Good stuff. Well, we're just about out of time. Let's let's try this last segment, Philip. You want to try the uh, character creation?
2: Yeah, we actually um, we actually found out you used to be a gamer. I don't know if you still game now. Do you do you still play tabletop games at all?
1: You know, I do with my kids. Um, they they we love um, some ske- a sketch comedy group called Studio C, and they did a sketch on like Dungeons and Dragons players, and <laughs> my kids laughed their heads off. Of course, I laughed my head off, heads off, and my kids looked at me and they said. Like, Dad, do you know how to do Dungeons & Dragons? I'm like, yeah, that's where a lot of my story ideas originally came. From. <laughs> and they're like, you got to show us how! So I actually rolled them up characters and uh, taking them on these little adventures and stuff. So it's mostly with my kids, but occasionally uh, I've invited others into my, my, my brain, because I love being a, a dungeon master just because it's about creating stories, and that's uh, something that's always appealed to me. So, definitely.
2: Cool, so we wanted to do just a little quick segment. Uh, feel free to to throw out any ideas you'd like it's just a way to uh, make a fun little character and uh, we want to base it in your uh, current current world of the the king fountain uh, series so we're gonna essentially roll up a character real quickly And you're just going to tell us some different ideas about the character. And then uh, if someone so chooses, they can use the character for Kindle Worlds or do whatever they want with it. And it'll be an exclusive uh, to this podcast creation. Are you up for that? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, cool. So first, let's go with the character's age.
1: 17.
2: Okay, and then uh, what gender, male or female? Female. And... What job or class? So you can go with the traditional Dungeons and Dragons classes, or you could go with just a regular job or whatever you would like. Or
0: a custom class from your story universe. You yeah, know,
1: I, in my universe, the assassins are called poisoners. So it's got to be a poisoner. Because <laughs> in, in, in the King Fountain series, though, that's the cool class. So, you know, and and I love in, in my studies in medieval history, I love reading about and finding Examples of poisoners through real history. It's like, oh, this was a real deal.
2: (laughs) Okay, so we have a 17-year-old poisoner. I'm assuming she would be uh, new to the new to the uh, job, so to speak. Yes,
1: in training, it'd be a a poisoner in training. So she'd have a mentor, somebody who's teaching her the different different things, as well as uh, a poisoner has a has a like a real life job. Like, it could be a midwife, it could be a baker, it could be, you know. Something they have a they have to have a cover. They have to have a front uh, to give them a a legitimate reason to be somewhere Other than to kill people
0: maybe a part-time gig at Suncoast video (laughs) Part-time poisoner, okay, so what would what would her weapons or armor be if any or what would she keep on
2: her person?
1: so uh, The the poisoners in my story don't wear armor, so they're they're vulnerable in that regards, but you know, they they always have a multitude of weapons. It could be a poison and a, and a ring. It could be a dagger, something they keep concealed. Uh, they're also trained in hand-to-hand uh, combat. So that's uh, something that you know you, you want you want to think uh, somebody like Jason Jason Bourne, uh, you know, who can take out somebody with just um, who could do it with just their hands, you know.
2: Okay, so would you say she's more adept at hand-to-hand combat or more of like a secret poison or expert?
1: Well, the, the poisons are the, 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 the primary method because, you know, there's a lot of different things that the poisons could do, but you've got to be both because sometimes poisons can take a while to, to react or you might get caught in the middle of trying to get into the place that you're, you're trying to get to. and you might have to fight your way out. So they have to be trained in both things.
2: Okay. And then uh, would she have any magical abilities at all?
1: Ooh, good question. So in, in, in my universe, of the king fountain series uh somebody who has magic is called their fountain blessed and and that fountain blessed magic goes along with the million words principle or you know the ten thousand hours of a skill so they are somebody who has inherently learned a skill to the point that they've mastered it and that that mastery gives them access to this magic from the the fountain that enables them to do a special power. For example, the special power might be their ability to persuade somebody to do what they want them to do. Uh, Another power might be to turn invisible um, and no one can see them. So, when somebody's been fountain-blessed, their skill, you know, how they got their skill might not be exactly related to the skill itself. So, but it's incredibly rare, like only one out of a hundred thousand people might be actually fountain-blessed. So in this case, this Poisoner is not uh, for this D&D character because that's a super rare thing. You'd have to roll like a, you know, an O-1, you one know, <laughs> to be able to get that skill.
2: Okay, and then uh, what would you say her personality would be or uh, in old-school old, old school D&D ways, alignment you can go with either either, either, or?
1: Um, definitely not good uh, because, you know, the Poisoner's jobs are to, to kill people, but... The a lot of the poisoners that are hired by the kings and queens of my kingdom are, are, are they're there to eliminate threats. I mean, not just to increase power, but you know, there might be somebody who's trying to, you know, uh take them off of their throne. Uh they're also spy and they get information for people. So they're definitely one of the neutral alignments. Probably being chaotic neutral would be helpful to be able to be thinking on your feet quickly and be flexible in a situation but not necessarily radiate an aura aura of evil though there are certainly evil poisoners in my series
2: so it's good to be a little a little crazy maybe
1: a little crazy <laughs> yeah you need to be to handle stuff that's so inherently dangerous that if you touch one of your own poisons incorrectly it could kill you and so you got to be a very a little little nuts to do that job
2: that would be an an interesting kindle worlds uh, story someone a poisoner that accidentally poisons himself
1: <laughs> It'd be a very short story. <laughs> yeah.
2: Okay and then how about physical appearance? Uh, any notable things about her physical appearance?
1: You know I would say that um, somebody who's you know somebody who's in that job would really want to blend in so they, they, they wouldn't be you know excessively ugly or good looking. they want they want to be somebody who's going to be not seen in a crowd. So the poisoner school in my world is in a place called Pizan. And so that's where you, you're trained in disguise and, and things like that. But most of the poisoners don't want to be noticed because that's one of the fastest ways of getting caught and killed. And many of them will insinuate themselves into a household and, and, and maintain a disguise for years in order to be able to be trusted, in order to be able to get access to the, the victim that they need, to, they need to get rid of.
2: Okay. And then how about any goals or aspirations for this character?
1: Well, I think you know the for the goals is they want to be their own boss. I, I think there's there's autonomy that these people want that there's a, a very you know that they're being trained by people. They also have a goal for reputation right that they want to be known for having you know pulled off these elaborate jobs that other people. so there's kind of these bragging rights that go along with it. So somebody who's a poisoner wants to be able to gain some independence and not you know you know be able to pick the jobs that they do. As well as, as have a reputation, and so in, in my book, *The Queen's Poisoner*, the, the, the character that the title is based on is is one who everyone thinks is actually dead, but she's still alive and functioning, and is in the middle of the kingdom, and people don't even you don't even know who she is, and so that she's kind of achieved the pinnacle of that uh, le- legend, uh, that legend uh, that you know poisoners would want to have.
2: Uh, what is her hobbies like what does she, or what are some of her hobbies what are some things she likes to do when she's not poisoning people or punching them or kicking them
1: <laughs> <laughs> You know um when when you think about hobbies I think this one her hobby would be uh dancing there's a lot of intricate dances they did during the 15th century, and it's kind of the you know the, the, the timing that my story is based on. So I think her expertise would be making sure she's familiar with all the different kind of court dances and things available in all the variety. Lots of, there's a lot of different kingdoms in my world, and so I, I think that would be her natural hobby or interest was to make sure that she could visit any kingdom and be able to blend in with that society by knowing their dances.
2: Okay, and then uh, one last one. It's kind of a softball. But uh, wh- who, who would be her favorite writer?
1: You know, it, it, it's got to be this guy named Jeff Wheeler, you know.
2: Jeff Wheeler.
1: <laughs> just, just amazingly, yeah.
2: Okay, <laughs> she and then. She's
1: also like Patrick Rothfuss. I mean, definitely.
2: So put the cherry on top. Uh, what would you name this uh, character?
1: I would name this character Liel. Liel. Cool. And I just okay. came with that right out of my head. Just. <laughs> Brilliant. But my, but again, writers do that. I love, I love, I love creating names and worlds and stuff like that. So it's, it's not hard for me.
2: All right. Well, there, there she is. Liel. So anyone that wants to use Liel, go for it. Jeff gives you permission, correct?
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, just, just for clarity sake, the Kindle worlds program is only for my mirror series. Uh, uh it's not for everything that I've written. and I, I have to say this because um, in case my publisher listens to this podcast like <laughs> will, they want to make sure I don't mislead anybody. So um, okay. Muirwood is is what's fair game, okay? King Fountain not so much. Not so much. But oh, if present. it inspires you, write a story. That's still a good thing. Practice is good.
0: Yeah, Jeff, it's been great to to discuss these fantasy things with you. Now, let's uh, let folks know where they can find you online. You have a website?
1: Yep, jeff-wheeler.com. Amazon's the place where most people find me, though.
0: And then you're on social media as well? Yep,
1: I've got a Twitter handle, at Murrowood Wheeler, and I have an author page on Facebook.
0: Excellent, excellent. Well, best of luck to you uh, with the release of the uh, King Fountain Trilogy. You've got those books coming out uh, April 1st, then in May, and then September. So the whole trilogy will be out in a period of six months. Thanks so much for hanging out, Jeff. Best of luck to you uh, with, with your series, and uh, hopefully we'll be uh, having you back on in the
1: future. Sounds great. Enjoyed it. Thanks, guys.
0: You can find us online at facebook.com slash podcast, or on Twitter at Grim Dark Fiction. Download the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean. And if you like the show, please share it and leave a review. On behalf of co-host Philip Overby and myself, Rob Matheny, thanks for listening to this episode of the Grim Tidings Podcast. We'll see you next time.